an outsider questions the Buddha. An outer path practitioner asked the world honored one, I do not ask for that which is expressed through words, nor do I ask for that which is expressed through the wordless. The world honored one sat in his seat. The outsider exclaimed in praise, the great merciful and compassionate world honored one has dispelled the clouds of delusion in me and enabled me to enter the way. Then he prostrated with great reverence and left. Later, Ananda asked the Buddha, what did that outer path realize for him to praise you and leave? The world honored one replied, a good horse moves when he sees the shadow of a whip. Wu Men's comment, Ananda was the Buddha's disciple, yet his understanding was inferior to that of the outer path. Tell me, how far apart are the outer path's understanding and that of the Buddha's disciple? Walking on the sword's edge, running up an icy hill without steps or stages, hanging from a cliff, let go. All right. Well, I got some things to say. So, <laughs> go ahead, Kim. You got it. The floor is yours, Kim. Okay. First of all, I'm getting suspicious about Woolman. Uh, I think he's kind of acting as a teacher sometimes, and and asking questions that he knows the answers to, or just to kind of stir things up. But this question about how far apart are the I don't think the outer path guy really understood that much. It was just that Buddha completely got where he was. And that's why he didn't respond. Um, Ananda always was kind of clueless, but, but anyway, I don't take that question that seriously. I'm really um, puzzled by the verse. It reminds me of jumping off the 100 foot cliff but what does that have to the hundred foot pole but what does that have to do with this koan i can't figure out laurie has an idea well i don't know either but i i was thinking instead of the hundred foot pole the cliff where they grabbed the strawberries oh yeah um, i thought of that one well, i don't know where how that would fit in necessarily but what occurred to me too and this doesn't make sense either is that um how far apart are the outer paths understanding than that of the Buddha's disciple? Well, like you say, I think that Ananda, poor Ananda is always clueless, but um, I, I was wondering if that's a reference to, you know, the difference between, oh, the difference between um, the earth and the sky. No, well, no. heaven and earth is a hair's breadth difference. Yeah. Um, because it, but it, but it's the difference between heaven and earth. So it's just a hair's breadth difference, but it's a completely, it's duality in other words. So um, I don't know. I offer that not as an answer, but as just some things that occurred to me while I was listening and writing about it. I really like that, that hair's breadth, Laurie. Um, when I was reading woman's comment, I was thinking, well, Walking on a sword's edge takes great effort. Running up an icy hill takes great effort. 
but without steps or stages hanging from a cliff, let go. And that did remind me of the poem of um, the woman chased by tigers hanging from a branch and then sees a strawberry and just, you know, let's go. Grabs the strawberry and let's go. Yeah. It'll be interesting if Guo Gu picks up on that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually this uh, koan to me just is another, seems to be another way of saying that all the effort that we make doesn't get us what we, get us this understanding that we so desperately want. And, um, and I was asking myself, well then, um, what is still there beyond words and actually beyond the wordless? And, you know, Buddha just sat there. He just sat there. And, um, and then- It's kind of like when he held up the flower, isn't it? Kind of. Uh, yeah, you know, there's nothing really to say that's really, yeah. really important. Yeah, he just, he just and also he got completely where this guy was at. Yeah, and, and he just he just was being, and it it reminded me of stories you hear about Ramana. Um, sometimes people would come to him and ask him questions, and he wouldn't answer. He would just sit there in silence, and you know, just depended on who was there in front of him, and what he felt they needed, and um, you know, then there are accounts that his silence actually um, moved people to actually wake up, you know, just not even answering. So I, I kind of thought the Buddha was, um, you know, actually um, transmitting something just by not, not answering. Let go. <laughs> Let go of your ideas. What's curious? Can I add one more thing? What's curious to me is he says that the, the outer path asks the world honored one, but it's not a question. That's always confuses me. I don't ask for words, nor do I ask for the wordless. Um, uh, it's just weird. Yeah, it's, it's almost implied. Like the Buddha not, knew what he was you know, wanting. Wanting, yeah. Asking yeah. for. Yeah, to and it's like the guy saying, you know, I, I know it's not the words, I know it's not, you know, it's beyond words, and then there's the question, but the question is still here. What am I? You know? <laughs> Any answer that the Buddha would have given would just um, take him to a place where where he wasn't at. It's kind of like my sister, the, the she was a psychoanalyst, and she told me once, she didn't like to ask questions of her clients because it would take them someplace they might not be going. Mm. That's interesting. Hi, sorry. I can Hi, wait. Nancy. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Nancy. So, yeah, what do you think, I, Nancy? I, huh? Sorry. We want the answer. Oh, hey, I jumped. I um I joined uh well, what they call um painting around the world and I got home late. Oh, okay. <laughs> Here's the painting I did. Oh, nice! That's beautiful. <laughs> oh, thank you. I did not get in any prize though. 
Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's the answer. Just be. Yeah. Do you satisfy with my answer or do I get punished? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyone else? I, t- I, t- I, t- I took. Cody wants to I say took something. This corn, I guess, a little bit different. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. But you could be a little louder. Okay. I. I took it as like, uh, stay on your own path. Um, mm-hmm. Like as far as that, the second part, like walking on the sword's edge, I guess, uh, I don't know if I didn't read too far into it, but you know, I guess like walk, trying to walk somebody else's path would be like a slippery slope, you know, versus staying on your own path. And that's, that's what I took from it. Mm-hmm. Is this a description of, of Ananda, do you think? Who's always playing it safe, who's taking things literally? Who who well, doesn't well, well you would you would you would assume that a person that plays it safe would wouldn't um, you know follow their own path. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, they'll take the easy way out. I get the impression that Ananda, though, really wanted to wake up. He really wanted, you know, to know. He just, he, it's not just there yet. It. he was a little frustrated. He's just, just not there yet. He just wasn't. Yeah, so he doesn't, you know, he doesn't get there until after Buddha dies. And then he gets enlightened. But he has a lot of work to do, remembering all those all the talks. Yeah. But wasn't when Ananda got enlightened, wasn't it because after the Buddha died, remember we heard that in one of these koans, um, they were having a big um, conference about right. you know, how the teaching should proceed. And they said he couldn't attend because he wasn't enlightened. Right. Right. Yeah. Then, the, the two requirements then, were you couldn't be levitating and you had to be enlightened. Yeah. And he, and he, so he, he just struggled as hard as he possibly could to wake up. He put every effort in it and then finally just had to let the whole thing go. And then he woke up. No, I, th- I thought it was like when he woke up in the morning, he woke up or something. Well, whatever. I okay. I don't know. <laughs> I don't okay. Know. So now we're going to read Google Goo. One paragraph at a time. Yes. Okay, I'll read that. The world honored one was one way people addressed Buddha. When he gave teachings, people gathered around him, asking questions using words or gestures. And the Buddha usually gave, in this case, an outer path practitioner, meaning a non-Buddhist, asked for a teaching that is bound by neither words nor the word less. The Buddha just sat there. The outer path practitioner had a realization and suddenly broke through his shell. With gratitude, he paid his respects to the Buddha. Ananda was baffled by what had just happened. Wuman dropped his nails and pushes further. How far apart are the outer path and Ananda in understanding? Put it down.
in the collection of the Agama Sutras, there is one scripture entitled the whip shadow where the Buddha talks about four kinds of horses drawing an analogy to four types of practitioners. Horses in pre-modern time were ridden or used with carts. So people use whips to get the horses to move. The Buddha said that with some horses, no whip, no whip is necessary. While with other horses, a whip needs to be used repeatedly. The first type of horse is one that is tame. Just show the whip and the horse knows what to do. In terms of the teaching, this type of student needs, needs only a hit, hint to get, it, to get it immediately. He or she will know what to do without being shown again. The first horse represents, the student, represents a student who is truly ripe for awakening. With only one hint, the student realizes his or her true nature. Moreover, the person will connect one's teaching to others and will grasp various concepts in the most profound way. So I guess with the I second guess, type of horse. Wait, wait, wait. Is I, used I think you're reading too many paragraphs. He's the leader. Okay. He can do what he wants. <laughs> but you, you said one paragraph. Yeah. But but I think that uh, we take turns, right? He's quite a student, isn't he? We take turns, but Cody, yeah. you have to tell us who reads next. You're okay. in charge. <laughs> in a profound way. Okay. So Kim, you can read next. Okay. With the second type of horse, the whip is used to brush against its mane and get it going. Students of this type will do only what they are told to do step by step. If you ask them, how come when I asked you to do this, you didn't do that as well while you were, you didn't do that as well while you were at it, they will answer, you didn't tell me to. So they're unable to make connections and need to be told what to do. When they are told to do something, they just do it wholeheartedly. In this sense, they are honest and steadfast. They are solid practitioners, but they need an extra push to be awakened. For example, during a recent retreat, I asked a student, how is it going so far? He said, very good. I said, how good is good? How good is it? Why is it good? He replied, I have no obstructions. Everything is very smooth. So I said, are you saying that it's not good when you have obstructions? I caught him off guard. He was still dwelling in the good versus bad. He realized this and, re and replied, having obstructions is also good as it helps me. Okay, Nancy, you go next. Okay. The third type is when the horse stops moving, but only after being wiped being whipped directly on the flesh. This can be compared to students who say, when giving a teaching, yes, yes, I know, I know. With a second teaching, they say, yes, I know how to do that. This is only with the third one that they say, okay, I do it. For example, I can give this advice. Don't get involved in wandering thoughts or pay attention to the method or savor each moment with the method. Enjoy the method instead of trying to get rid of thoughts or get into blissful state. Just don't get involved. Stay with the method. 
However, in private interviews during retreats, students will tell me, I'm practicing very well today. I was in the state where I sat for three periods, but I lost it. How can I enter that state again? Even though they have heard me say not to get involved in different states, but just to keep going with the method as soon as they get into some pleasant state, they forget what I said. <laughs> hey, Stephanie, you're next. The fourth type is a student who needs a good beating, metaphorically speaking, of course. There's a Chan saying, students are born at the tip of a stick. These types of students must be told the same thing again and again and again, either because they just don't retain it or because they hold on to their own ideas so strongly that hardly anything gets through. So it is very difficult to guide them. The fourth type of horse is one that needs to be beaten hard on the flesh. The pain goes to the bone and only then will the horse move. Okay, Gail, can you read? Actually, I'd like to add another type of horse. Mm -hmm. The fifth type of horse simply stands there, even if you beat it. It's called beating a dead horse. These <laughs> students are so ingrained in their views and opinions about things and words and language in their own constructed views that they can't break free, nor do they really want to. Whatever you teach them, or no matter hard, how hard you try, they just won't move. There's an expression in Chinese that says, don't play music to a cow. This means that no matter what you play, whether a Beethoven piano sonata or a violin piece, the cow simply can't appreciate it. It just keeps chewing on the grass while you're there playing sophisticated tunes. There are students like that. The minds of the teacher and the student just don't meet. So do you think Ananda was like that? Mm. Do you think Buddha was, was embarrassed by Ananda? No. <laughs> Who said no, Lori? Yes. Okay, good. I agree. I don't think so either. Yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah. Maybe he just knew that someday. Yeah, I think, I think Ananda was the third one. I kind of relate to him. <laughs> so like you're really, really trying, you know, but you really have to suffer. <laughs> you really have to suffer before you finally just let the whole thing go. Um, suffer you know. a long time. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be told you can't join the party. You have to. <laughs> okay, Cody, who's after Gail? All right, Laurie. Sometimes we are the one type of horse, at other times we are another. Also, with one teacher, we are one type of horse where nothing goes in, while with another, whose teaching we really resonate with, we become a different horse. It's about timing and causes and conditions. When I began as a novice attendant monk to my teacher, I was terribly absent-minded, partly because of my young age. I'd forget all kinds of things. Why well, resonate with that? Uh, he would have to give me the same instruction over and over again. 
Later on, he no longer needed to do this. Our minds became very close. Just from the way he looked at me, I knew what he wanted. Therefore, it happens that people begin as one type of force and later end up as another. In this gongan, the outer path practitioner was the first type of force, ripe for the teaching. No practice was necessary. That's kind of interesting because he was an outsider. So he, I don't know what they mean by that exactly, uh, other than he wasn't one of the monks and he wasn't, I guess. Well, they, they, it says somewhere that he was a non-Buddhist. A non-Buddhist, yeah. Oh, yeah. At the beginning, but I think. at some point he was what you would call a tame horse, meaning there had to have been some, um, some practice of some kind going on, I, I imagine with a person like that? Not necessarily. I'm, no? I would think with some people just get it, you know? I don't think it worked. I don't, well, what do I know? But I would think that there were some people that, I mean, you've seen you taking classes and things where there are just some people that walk in and they can learn things on a dime. It, it looks like, it seems like they've, they've done it in a previous life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Ajashanti used to say a uh, joke that he's seen people wake up after falling off a bar stool. <laughs> just like that. No practice, nothing. Yeah. Just slow. <laughs> That's funny. All right. Wuman's comment is about you. He is asking, what kind of horse are you? When you come across a teaching, how do you respond to the teacher? Isn't it true that sometimes non-Buddhists behave in ways that are even more spiritually mature than Buddhists? Mm -hmm. Wuman asks you to compare yourself with the best of non-Buddhists. How far apart is your understanding from theirs? Don't compare yourself with the worst of them, but with the best. Then he gives his poetic four-line verse as a hint on how to practice genuinely. How? Walking on the sword's edge, running up an icy hill without steps or stages, hanging from a cliff, let go. All right, Kim, is back on you, man. Woman suggests a path to death. Not the literal kind like suicide, but putting to death self-grasping. <coughs> In Chan, we have a saying, only through the great death will you come to great life. Are you willing to let go? Question. Uh, Practice. Uh, are we? Oh, okay. Practice is unlike anything the world can offer. The world offers craving and bondage. The Dharma offers relinquishment and freedom. This part of relinquishment is like walking on the source edge and running on an icy hill. It's dangerous because this can quickly turn to self-aggrandizement or, self or selfish fantasy. It may at times seem full-time, full going nowhere, but that's precisely where you are frustrating your self-attachment. Keep going. John Master Delvey likens the process of the practice of meditating on a critical phrase to a dog chewing 
uh, taste this bone? Should the dog stop? No. When the practitioner gets to the stage, to the state, the stage where it seems like it's going nowhere, it actually is going somewhere. If your if your practice is such that everything is going smoothly without obstacles, then you are probably doing exactly what your self-attachment wants you to do. Practice is also unlike worldly, goal-oriented gains. It's the process that matters. When you try to climb a hill of ice, you will eventually slide back. The point is in putting in the effort to get to the top. It is not really about getting to the top. In the process of trying, you lose yourself and drop your attachment. Then you realize that you are already on top of the other. Mm -hmm. When walking on a sword's edge, which can be dangerous and difficult, you will find that there's no one to kill. There's no one who dies. Go up a ladder by putting down. When you find yourself where words don't reach and concepts fall away, with no steps forward or backward, you will find yourself on top of the ladder. I have a question here. Um, this is the second time he's mentioned putting down. What does putting down, that means like letting go? Putting down. I'm sorry? I, I kind of thought that too. Yeah. Does anybody else have a idea about that? You don't think it's letting go of attachments? Yeah, I think it's letting go. Yeah. I just wasn't sure. Okay. Ideal. Although these analogies may seem nihilistic, walking up a ladder with no steps, climbing up an icy hill, walking on a knife's edge, actually, when you let go, everything comes to life. For the first time, everything is there. All things are awakened as they are manifesting in themselves naturally without any coloration. Only you are absent. Does the world disappear? Everything becomes pristinely clear as opposed to being limited and skewed by your views and ideas. Then the full potential of everything happens of its own accord. Sentient beings deliver themselves in each moment. Vows are fulfilled. Hey, Laurie. Okay. Chan, Chan asks you to put down your colored lens that skews your vision. It doesn't give you another lens to wear. Awakening is not like getting another lens. It is putting down your views. This is difficult only because you love your lens too much. You buy into your views, your fantasies and your preferences and your experiences that derive from them. You are too scared to let go. They're what you have ever known, all that you have, even though your pain comes from them. It is natural that you are afraid to let go of them, but the price you pay is the suffering and vexations you feel. Thank you. 
most people practice so that their life is enriched. They don't want to let go, but they really want to be awakened. They want to have the best of both worlds. This is simply greed, the very culprit that has caused you pain. Your whole world is oriented to having, and when you don't have, you feel sad. You feel like you, you feel you feel you failed. But you forget that the genesis of these feelings is marketing strategies. I'm not criticizing marketing managers in the corporate world. It goes much deeper than that. This is the nature of samsara. You are like a puppet with your emotions going up and down tied to strings of having and not having. Okay, Kim, it's on you, Kim. Having and not having is deeply tied to words. During an, an intense retreat, a practitioner told me that he's always had a commentator or narrator inside him. Whatever he experiences or thinks, there is a voice inside that takes notes, summarizes what is, is happening, and dictating what needs to be done. So when this person sits and has wandering thoughts, his inner commentator makes a note of that. When he thinks of something, the voice inside tells him, this is A, this is B, this is good, this is bad. He can never get away from this voice that has become a disembodied being inside him, something that is not him. Even when he is doing well with his mind concentrating on the method, the voice will say, good, you're on the method. By chance, he has come upon a New Age self-help book that talked about this commentator, the author called The Theater Voice. It was described as some kind of primordial being that one can connect with and take as a guide for one's daily life. <laughs> the author encouraged readers to cultivate it, to latch onto this primordial voice, the true discriminator, <laughs> or something to that effect. The student was really affected by that book as this was exactly what he was experiencing. He wanted to know what Buddha Dharma had to say about his commentator, which did not seem to gel with some of the teachings that he had heard in this retreat, especially when I spoke about letting go of words and language that by defy and shape our experiences and life. He was baffled and wanted my comments about that. To me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I basically told him to put the voice aside and to return to the method that eventually the commentator would go away. Only by doing so could he develop concentration. Words and language are really structured around binary poles, having, not having. Good, bad, yes, no. These belong to the discriminating mind, which is characterized by vexations and self-grasping. If you want to enter the gateless barrier of Chan, you will have to let them go. You will have to let everything go. Many people have, to one extent or another, a commentator inside them, judging them. The voice is self-consciousness. It may seem hard to be free from being self-conscious because it's the seat of self-grasping, but it is actually not so hard. 
This inner voice belongs to the superficial layer of the discriminating mind, which is completely shaped by language. In order to be free, practice non-conceptual methods. If you reach a state of concentration, the mind is naturally free from scattered thoughts and with it, the coarser states of discriminating mind. When you reach a unified state, discrimination based on words and language is transcended. This is not awakening, but already these states have gone beyond words. Me? Yes, on you, Lord. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Thank you. Some of you may wonder what the difference is between awareness and thought. Awareness is different from your internal monologues, self-conscious, and the inner commentary. Awareness is a natural ability of your mind, just like your eyes have the ability to see, the ears have the ability to hear, your mind knows. So perception or knowing can happen without words and language. While words and language are also part of your mind's function, they need not be. Funda uh, foundational meditation methods, such as being aware of the body or being aware of tactile sensations are non-conceptual methods. Being aware of the sensation of the breath passing through your nose actually frees you from the limitations of the words or labels of noting this and that. The very reason you know that the breath is going through your nostrils is sensation. There's no need to verbalize about it. It is very similar to your rubbing your hand. You know that something is rushing through your hand because you feel it. Your knowing does not depend on words. Your experience of awareness is non-conceptual. You think, Lori, in the you know, the studies you did about spe speech and conversation, do you think that this is somewhat controversial, what he's saying? I mean, some people say you can't think without words. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't, in the, in the teachings of the wise speech, they very much use sensation. They talk about for example, there's some exercises I was telling you about earlier, I was working on and, and when you're working with anger and paying attention to the sensations of anger. So but you're not at some point verbalizing it in your mind? No, you don't verbalize it in your mind. You, you may practice it previously. You're not you know? saying I am angry and, and recognize that with words? No. That's yeah, not, you know, that's not the process. It's not verbal. It's it's a recognition of it, but you don't have to verbalize it. You know, Laurie, what it makes me think of is: Have you ever noticed sometimes there's a narrator that's actually kind of talking, like he's saying in your mind? But much of the time, if I really pay attention, I'm moving without a narrator. I reach over and get the glass without the word saying. Gail's picking up a glass. I just reach oh, yeah. over and do it, you know? Yeah. yeah and absolutely. so there's a movement that happens. That's what I've been noticing. There's this movement. And I think the words or the thought about it comes a split second later. The, the movement's already happening, you know? Yeah. The, the commentator is, has to be necessarily active. I know I, I have a voice that will tell 
tell a story about something just happened. That's a little bit different. But it's like as if I'm telling somebody else, but I'm telling myself. It's like, I already know this story. <laughs> but anyway, that's a little bit different. Thing. <laughs> I don't know what that is. That's a, kind of like a commentary. But, okay. So um, we hear that, that our unconscious makes decisions before our conscious does. But you think those decisions are non-verbal. I think they work. are. I think thought is a lot faster than, than verbalization. And you don't think of thought as being with words? Not necessarily. I, you just have to kind of look at your own experience. You know, I, there have been times when I really pay attention, let's say I'm sitting out on the patio and um, I'm reading or something. And then with no thought, I'll shut the book and stand up. And then later the thought comes up, oh, I'm gonna go in there and get some coffee. But for some crazy reason, if you really pay attention, the movement is happening before those words are happening. You know what I mean? And also, um, I've spoken about this before about how sometimes, um, you know, we talk about finding the gap. You're in a situation, it's a difficult situation and, and you get present and all of a sudden you become much more aware. It's like you do a step backwards and you see what's going on before you, but you're, you have the presence of mind literally to be able to make a choice of going the habitual way as opposed to going um, a new way. And it's, it's not necessarily, I have always said I didn't think about it and I, I will hold to that. It's not a thought. It's, yeah. it's just going into motion. It's just acting. It's an immediate action. Yeah, I agree. I, I had um, um, a situation where my husband came in and was complaining. I think I've talked about it before in the kitchen and I was trying to cook. And he, in my story, my husband always is complaining about something, right? So he complained. I had the thought, oh, he's complaining. And then I noticed that I was having that thought and I just got really quiet for a second. And in the moment that I was still, I turned around and looked at him and then just reached over and hugged him for some crazy reason. But mm -hmm. I didn't have a thought. I didn't have a thought that I wanted to hug him. I didn't have a thought that it was time to hug him. It just happened in, in the space of quiet. Yeah. You know, do you need, that's kind of what you're talking about. Yes, right, it's precisely what I'm talking about. And I, that's the same kind of stuff I've done with my mother on occasion. All of a sudden, I just go up and hug her or give her a kiss on the cheek. And I go, where did that come from? Right. <laughs> so is this the way you, you sense that Buddha was when he didn't respond? That it wasn't a verbal thing? Oh, this guy's really got these questions and he's not ready to go anyplace else. So maybe I'll just be quiet. I don't think that occurred. Yeah, I don't think it did either. He doesn't, I don't think he's he's moving from that place. I think he's moving from the place that Lori's talking about and the, and the place that I hugged my husband. That's from a non-verbal place. Non-verbal, non-conceptual place. It's, it's more like just an awareness. Moving yeah. from awareness. As it's just like to... a beat. You're just being, you're just, yeah, so that's how I'm sensing now when he holds up the flower, that he's not thinking this whole like scenario, well, I'm going to hold up the flower and maybe someone will smile and get it and he's not going there. 
I don't think that's how he teaches. I think he's teaching yeah. maybe and sometimes he may think that. I don't know, but it seems like it's more about, as you say, being just well, acting he, from acting from this place of awareness because he's aware. He's a, he's an awakened one. So he's he's but one thing's following the other. So he sees the flower, then he picks it up, then he holds it up. It's just a movement, Kim. I think I think so. I agree. Okay, where are we? The mind. We gotta go uh the next, to the next page. Yeah. The mind from one moment to the next has the ability to be clear. One can note something conceptual while remaining non-conceptual. There we go. Let's take, let's take a light for uh, light as, as an example. The light need not be aware in order to shine on objects in the room. The light, the light shines on everyone present. It just shines. It does so not, so no matter what the object is, whether the object is sensation or a concept. So this perception or awareness comes from many different systems in our brain, sending out signals systemically working together. It is not something like a witness, mm -mm, which is activated by the region of the brain that involves language. And language mm -hmm. is a construct made up of symbols. This is to say witnesser is made up of wandering thoughts. I get I get that all the time. Like every time I'm sitting, it, it seems like I'm talking to myself. <laughs> yes. Every I mean, time regard, what? I didn't hear the full sentence, Cody. Every I, I time. Say every time I'm I'm sitting, I'm talking to myself. Oh. Seems oh. like it seems like. Yeah, the voice in the head. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, join the club. Right. <laughs> and I yeah, <laughs> this remind me about the um the noble silence that um we are not allowed to talk to anyone, but at the same time we need to take care of the conversation inside ourselves. Yes, yeah. that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's when you really begin to notice. Oh, this thing has been talking my whole life. Oh my god. <laughs> I've had this voice in my head all every for as long as I can remember. <laughs> the first time I really sat with Austin Zen Center, I spent it was a one day sit, and I came out of there saying, "Oh my God, I can't believe I made up all that stuff in my head. That's all I did all day long. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's what I do. I couldn't believe it." Nancy, I know I you. It. Nancy huh? did a, a vipassana thing, a ten day thing. Did they talk to you about that, that not just be noble silence, but be not getting rid of the thoughts in your head? No, no, no. they did not talk about that. They just told me not to make any contact with people around. Yeah, but I think that's really a good, a good challenge, what you're saying. I love that. Yeah, you know, when I do retreats, silent retreats with the Ajashani retreats, there's no speaking to anybody, no looking at anybody. It's kind of like we do at Apamata for short periods, but for, for five or seven days. You yeah, but what, what, your mind, you'll but, start but what's nice about what Nancy's saying is taking it a step further. Yeah. 
and and be noble silent to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I do too. Is that even possible? That's what I was about to say. <laughs> <laughs> Let's find out. I don't I don't know. I well, thought it was just me, but but well you do run out of the stuff. Yeah, after, after a, while. a while. That's true. Yeah. What happens is you in my experience, I ran out of since I wasn't generating new experiences with talking to people or having relationships. Yeah. I started to go more into the what was already up here talking, you know, mm. and then I found I was making stuff up, even about the non-relationship. I mean, it was just crazy. Um, so, and I think uh, also it, being tired and being in some pain helps to get rid of some of that because then that becomes primary. Yeah. Well, and eventually it just wears itself out after a while. It just, or you can have chatter, but you don't really notice it. It's in the background. It's just going yeah, off. It's like airplane. It's like the airplane announcements in the airport, like Peg said, said, said <laughs> that's what it's like. <laughs> but it's also like when you're with someone and they're just talking on and on and on and on and you tuning them out. <laughs> and thank you, Cody. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about the pain part. I um I went up to that monastery. I don't know, Lori might remember. Um uh, do you Which remember one? the the one in Arkansas in I think it was in Arkansas? Oh yeah, I don't remember. Right. Oh, that's the ecumenical center. What's it called? Ecumenical Center. No, no, this is the one with Shoryu. Shoryu, who used to be at Austin Zen Center, and then he went to study with. Oh, him. I know who you mean. Yeah, yeah. I know who you mean. Okamura's. Oka, Oka, Oka uh, yeah. And, uh, disciple. So I went up there with one other girl. There was just the three of us. There was Shoryu, me, and a girl named Jacqueline. And it was up in the mountains in his monastery. And he does every month, he does uh, five day, uh, completely silent, 14 hours of sitting. Ah! And so be what, the, the girl I went with really wanted to go and I was, I just decided I'd go along with her. But let me tell you, you want to talk about pain. That first day I thought I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to make it. And I was in so much pain from 14 hours of sitting. And he didn't have chairs. You were sitting, you know, like you couldn't change to a chair. You had to be on the cushion, right? And so <laughs> uh, I'm telling you, I was in so much pain. So what happened was I went to bed that first night and I prayed. I swear to God, I just prayed. And I said, <laughs> I don't know if I can do this. I, I'm really, you know, I, and I woke up the next morning and we went through the first sitting and then I got this message. It just came to me and it said, find your seat, find your seat. So uh, we had a break, you know, like the 10 minute break, you know, to walk between sittings. And I went out into his main room and he had, um, he had a bunch of cushions around, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, Zoftus and different things. I collected a whole bunch of cushions and things. I went back into the Zendo. I built up this, this edifice of sitting, this comfortable sitting area, and I sat in it, and I got 
comfortable for the first time in like 48 hours. Oh. And, and, and then the rest of the retreat, I was able to sit. <laughs> so I didn't suffer that much, Kim. What I did is I found my seat. That's what yeah. I did. <laughs> and, and then that, you know, but I have to tell you that when you're in extreme pain, that's all your mind says is I'm hurting, I'm hurting, I'm hurting, I'm hurting. That's all it says over and over. Holly, stop. I think it's on you, Kim. Okay. Light is able to shine because there are wires connected to a switch, which in turn is connected, connected to electricity, <coughs> for which you don't have to pay. You have to pay. For which you have to pay. <laughs> if you don't pay the bill, the light will be cut off. All of these systems and wires allow this light to emit luminosity. It is systemic. Whereas an inner voice is actually formulations of sentences and concepts, the function of a discriminating mind. Mm. The discriminating mind is intrinsically limited. For example, I'm holding a printed page on my, in my hand. If I ask what it is, you may say paper. But as soon as you label it as paper, you miss on the other components that make, that make up what it is. For example, the trees from which the raw material paper comes and the sun and water that nourish them, the factory that manufacture the paper and the ink in, on the paper. When you review something about an entity that is conceptually formulated or labeled, you simultaneously consume other aspects. When you say, I'm this type of person, that prevents you from being that type of person. Words and ideas shape identities, self image, and thereby limit your potential. Yet mm. following words and concepts, you make yourself into this or that. The more you grasp them, the more you become bound by them. Words and language are not necessarily useless. They can help you, but when you are caught by them, defined by them, you suffer. Mm -hmm. What about the wordless teachings of Chan? Chan methods of silent illumination and watu or critical phrase are non-conceptual methods. The former drops all words. The latter uses simple words to put an end to words. I've written about these methods in different articles, which can be found on my center's website, tallahasseechan.com. So I will not elaborate on them here. Suffice it to say that the silent illumination method is based on the cultivation of awareness mm -hmm. and the Watu method takes the approach of using concepts to destroy concepts. You meditate on an unanswerable, ineffable question to generate a strong sense of wonderment, questioning, and not knowing, so that the mind becomes completely engulfed by this active yet non-conceptual state. Oh, that's cool. Gail, it's on you, Gail. So much before I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> you may think that 
Chan prefers silence over words. In a certain sense, this is true, but the wordless teaching itself can be a source of attachment. Grasping onto silence is like grasping onto non-existence or not having or nihilism. It is still wrong. I once heard a talk by a Vedanta Hindu who described Buddhism as basically another form of Hinduism. But the way he depicted it basically amounted to the necessity of destroying consciousness and the world of illusions, this world, in order to realize ultimate reality. It sounded like some kind of abstraction that has no attributes. This is nihilism. Hey, Lori. Oh, sorry. It's in there somewhere. What is the teaching that is beyond words and wordlessness, beyond permanence and nihilism, gain and loss, having and lack? The Buddha responded with silence, but that is his answer. What is yours? Tread your path carefully on the knife's edge. If you can speak without using words or silence, without mimicking someone else, then you are the first type of horse, which runs freely without stomping over ground crops, grown crops and fields. If you cannot, then whip yourself to get on with practice. <laughs> I like this one. Yeah, I really, I, I got in this can, can other go course, back I was, what? I said, can you go back one more? Page. Sure. Uh, where is it at? Oh, it, I would that line. It, it just it just caught me the grasping onto silence is like grasping onto non-existence or not having or nihilism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that kind of reminds me of the uh, warning against getting um, lost in transcendence. Or, or emptiness or vo the void or emptiness mm -hmm. and, and you know trying to say then that form has no existence yet it obviously does have existence <laughs> and it isn't separate from non-existence that's it, it, it's just a it's interesting it just though. is yeah wow well, I definitely learned something in this one. And in this other course I was taking, we were a lot of talk about silent illumination. And um, this gives me a lot to think about in terms of. Uh, what course, Kim? Well, well, this is the one about the grass hut. Oh, I, okay. I oh. talked to you about that. Yeah. But, but, uh, we were supposed to be practicing silent illumination as we were reading it. And um, yeah, I'm pretty full of words. I, I was just struck in this one, um, how he kind of outlines um, how difficult it is to um, see beyond the egoic state. You know, we're kind of, um, you know, we all kind of know that. That's why we're here. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, he just really outlines uh, how hard it is to give up 
this feeling of being a separate person and how sometimes we don't even want to. So, you know, you say you do, you say you want to, but when it really, when push comes to shove and you really realize that you can't even keep, you can't even keep the good parts of your egoic sense of self, you know, that that all is going to fall through. That's a pretty, that's a pretty um, scary thing for um, most people. At least I'll speak for myself. It's a big leap. That's for sure. I mean, you could be giving up everything that you know, you believed or you thought, you know, exactly, exactly. Good or bad. We want to give up the bad stuff, but what about the good stuff? You know, it's like, uh, I had to, I finally had to understand that I actually even had to give up my attachment to being say a mother, you know, not, not, it's not that I'm not playing the role but the idea that that's what I am, that was a tough one. That's a tough one. I'm, yeah. yeah, I think those things of our identity are the hardest, hardest ones to give up. We're so attached to how we see ourselves, you know. I think that's one of the biggest um, challenges of aging because we're yeah. losing so many of our identities as we age. Our children grow, we retire, we may change communities, um, so many changes. Mm-hmm. And, and just, you know, for, for women, you know, what we are as women changes. I mean, who are we anymore? You know, we're not childbearing or, you know, there's a whole different identity. Yeah. And I'm sure it's the same for men, not the same, but a similar sort of process happens to men. Yeah, it's not uncommon when you, you know, uh, talk to teachers in practice discussion or other people that are on the path to have had, uh, run into people who've had the experience of um, getting close to actually having the bottom drop out of the bucket and then just put a stop to it because it just seems too, it, it, it seems like you're going to die. It seems like you're literally going to die. And um, sometimes there'll even be an element of um, uh, energetic movement, like heart racing. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, and you honestly feel like, I think I'm going to have a heart attack. I think I'm going to die. Um, that's what fear does when you get to a threshold of actually having to give up this sense of who you are. Don't you think that's the ego kicking in? Absolutely. It's the, uh, it's the, the thought comes in that without this ego, you'll be nothing. Or in, my, in, in women's cases, and in my case, what happened is the thought came up that I would be abandoning. I would change so much that I would be abandoning my children. Ah. And I've heard from other teachers that that's very common for women. Uh, that's one of the ways that manifests, that fear manifests for women. You know, because we give birth, you know, and we kind of think we're in charge of all that, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a pretty centering role. It's a real, it's yeah. a major role that, that many women have. Yeah. Um, losing control. I think that's uh, uh, the, uh, another fear. And, you know, with men and women, you have a feeling that you've lost, you know, you're having an experience that, in pra- that perhaps you will lose control. And in fact, you will. Yes, you will. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's a legitimate fear. <laughs> it is totally legitimate. It's legitimate, but um, you know, they keep encouraging us just to kind of meet it and move past it and everything will be, you know, <laughs> it won't be what we thought it was. Yeah, I, I keep thinking about the woman, you know, bites the strawberry and then lets go. I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I'd be clinging on to the little. I'd be clinging on there until I don't know. <laughs> until I couldn't hold oh, on anymore. I've often wondered about that, uh, Koan, because I think about, um, you know, when she decides to reach out for the strawberry and let go. Is she doing it both because she recognizes this is the this is what's in her focus right now. This is what's put in front of her is this beautiful, juicy strawberry while she's alive, you know, to take it and eat it. And yes, there's a tiger waiting below, but who knows when she falls down, that may scare the tiger so much that the tiger runs away and she gets to enjoy the strawberry and go on to live. I always figured she'd be dead by the time she, you know, hit the ground and so... I figured at least, it was at least you got to enjoy the strawberry before the well, tiger. You know, yeah. Now you're touching on the real fear. The real fear is that we die, that we are an individual, we are an individual separate entity called Gail, and that she will die. She she will die. And the fact is that the body may go, but what about am I just a body? You know, it's a scary thought. It's a scary thought, you know? Yeah, and I think that's the biggest thing when if you've ever spent time contemplating, you know, the Four Noble Truths and, and the impermanence aspect of just contemplating that. It's just, it's really powerful. Really powerful, I think. That was, that was, one, of, that was one of my biggest fears that drove me crazy, like, I had to, uh, it was, it was insane. Cause you know, I going to the war and then coming back and then like they had the Fort Hood shooting and then, mm-hmm. uh, it just, you know, like I kind of became a hermit almost. And, mm-hmm. you know, now I'm just, I'm really just starting to live again, basically. Yeah, that would be super, uh, I, 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 it's very hard for me to imagine getting over the, these traumatic experiences that happen in war with them. I, I just, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, I had that fear for the longest, and and now you know I feel like I control it better now. So, you know, thanks to the sitting and all of you, ladies and gentlemen, you know. Well, we're certainly glad you're here, Cody. Yeah. Thank you. Glad Thank to you. have you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you all. Yeah. But I've been afraid that I would die. I've had an experience where I felt I would die and I didn't want that to happen, you know? And then, it, then you have to go back and understand. I mean, I've been taught, you know, that I'm spirit, but I don't really believe it. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really believe it. But when you start practicing, when you start practicing and noticing, um, that's what this practice does. That's what meditation does, is you begin to realize 
you know, that maybe, just maybe, I'm not just a body. Right. So okay. I, talked to, I talked to Peg uh, this afternoon, and uh, I am going to go ahead and offer a um, probably a six-week course on death and dying, mm. uh, starting around June 1st, once I'm back and settled in Austin. And uh, I know I have some people over in the UK that want to attend, but I think instead of doing just a book, we're going to do like one session. We'll look at the five remembrances. Mm -hmm. um, and then we're going to look at some different readings from Tricycle and uh, Lion's Roar and excerpts mm -hmm. from other books and then discuss what people think about that. Um, I think there'll be a lot of uh, different thoughts. Yeah. Thoughts. Are you, are you going to do it in the middle of the day? Uh, no, it'll be in the morning so that the UK people can come. Um, probably after uh, Women in Zen on Saturday morning. Oh, okay. on Saturday. Hmm. Yeah, well, I might do it during the week. I mean, it would certainly be okay for me to do it during the week, but I think I would put it out there and offer two different times. One, a weekday and see how many people want to come and want a Saturday um, because so many people still work and they can't attend on a weekday. Mm. So, so we'll see, but yeah. That'd be good. Yeah. Be really well, good. I go guys. I got to get my dog out and call my mom. I'll see you guys next Monday. Okay. okay. Thank, Thank you. Everyone. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks Thank Cody you. for Thank leading. You, Bye, You're welcome. Have a good night. Bye. You too. Bye. Bye.